Hey, beloved, welcome to another amazing chapter of the book of Sean. I have a show tonight that's going to make you sit up and pay attention. None of us want to hear that we're sick, and none of us want to hear that we're sick twice with the same thing. My guest tonight knows that journey, and she knows it from the most dreaded perspective. The one thing none of us want to get, cancer. And my guest tonight not only heard it once, but she had to hear it again. I want to know what that feels like. I want to know what that moment was like. I want to know how did she keep it together? I want to know how is she able to be as wonderful and as present as she is with all that she's gone through. When you see her, you're going to realize that she don't look like what she's been through. And there's a reason for that. We're going to discover all of that together. We're going to talk about death counselors. Yes, the National Congressional Cemetery is high death counselors. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff tonight. We're going to do some Ask Dr. Sean, but we begin with the commemoration of the birthday and the holiday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who on this day the nation gathers to celebrate his life and legacy and work. How about we put his picture back up a little longer? <laughs> Dr. King, it was an amazing figure and an amazing American prophet. And he remains, even in death, what he is to all of us in memory and in principle. Someone who loved America enough to tell America the truth. Yeah, I could say more, but I'm going to leave it at that. Happy birthday, Dr. King. You deserve this holiday. America should, should have treated you better. And at the very least, we should not have martyred you in Memphis. I could say more, but I'm going to move on. <laughs> Welcome to the show tonight. My guest, Angela Banks-Pete. Hey, Miss Angela. Hey, back to Sean. How are you? I am awesome. Yes, well, you look awesome. I hope you feel as good as you look. Absolutely. That's good. That's good. That's good. I am, listen, this is such an interesting conversation we're going to have because you have had a journey that most people, you know, there's a line in the Bible that says, that says that that I fear the most has come upon me. And you mm -hmm. have had to deal with what most people fear the most. So let's begin this way. You were diagnosed with breast cancer in 2000. And then again, with breast cancer in 2001. Tell me about the moment you heard that you had it again. What was that moment? It was overwhelming. Um, I felt like I was Job's sister, like why again? Mm. What am I supposed to learn? Take me into the moment, like, Wait, were you in the doctor's office? Did they call you? Were you driving? I was in the doctor's office and they didn't know how to tell me. Mm. So I could just tell by their facial expression before they even delivered the news. So you're sitting there, I guess I'm assuming you went for like a regular checkup and they they're doing this sort of regular test that they do and you're sitting there you know you're thinking i've gotten past this to 2000 and then they come in and what's the look on their faces um it was a look of i don't know how to tell you this bad news wow and you and you could tell from the look right exactly 
And did you think it was what it turned out to be? Yes. Oh, so you, oh, this is interesting. So tell me what, what was the intuition that sort of told you, you know, something might be going on? I had a lump. Oh, that's not intuition. Okay, okay. I had a lump, but they told me um, months prior that it wasn't that. And so when I went back to the doctor and to find out that it was, um, I dealt with it um, in silence for a couple of months. Mm. And that put me inside. So I had to share it. Yeah. To do it. Yeah. And, and I guess this question, it might almost be obvious, but could you even believe that this was happening to you again? No. I, I pray and I question God and this asked him to give me understanding because the first time that I had cancer, I knew it was something I had to go through to get to because mm. I was raising a child and I could not leave my child. Mm. The second time, um, as a caregiver, I knew I could not leave because I'm caring for someone. Mm. And so I would throw myself into my work, helping other people um, you know, with their problems to distract myself from my own. Because yeah. the first time I had cancer, um, I didn't work, so I was just in it. I got to feel it what I was going through. But the second time I didn't allow myself to do that. Stop for a second, because I think I think that's an important place and point to sort of drop our buckets and do a little work. And, and here's what I know for sure. I know that what we avoid, we cannot heal. And I also know that physical pain and sickness it also causes emotional, psychological, and spiritual discomfort and disease. So when you found out that you had cancer again for the second time, what did it do to your spirit? It broke my spirit. Mm. And how did you know you were broken? Um. I didn't know how to express myself. I isolated myself to seek understanding. Mm. Um, I just couldn't comprehend. Yeah. I just felt, I felt like I was Joe's sister. <laughs> like not this, I've been through so much. I've overcome so much now, this, again. How did you tell the people in your life that you had it again? Was that a hard conversation? Yeah, that's when the tears started flowing. Why? When I had to tell people and they would start crying and mm. they're thinking it's the end. Mm. So when you shared it with people, they immediately went to worst case scenarios and assumed that a reoccurrence of the cancer had to mean that it was worse, more deadly, and that you were going to lose your life, right? Exactly. Mm. So you're talking to people you love and they're making those assumptions and having those emotional reactions. What are you doing in that moment? Are you crying too? Are you, are you allowing yourself to feel? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Once I shared it, 
that's when the tears just started flowing. Every time I would tell someone, I would cry. I would cry. I would cry. Mm. And were they tears of anger, tears of disappointment, tears of sadness? It was anger. Mm. Why me? Why mm. again? Why now? Mm. Who were you mad at? I was mad at God because I feel like I, I've done everything right. You know, I feel like I'm a good person. I'm always doing for others. I'm giving people free resources. I'm, I'm a giver. So why would I have to experience this twice? And I have a nonprofit for a black woman with breast cancer. So here I am helping other people and I find out in the process that I have it again. Mm. So how do I process that I'm helping others and I'm going through the same thing? And then I didn't know if that chemo would, um, if I would, if the cancer would progress doing chemo or not. So I was doing, I was dealing with fear during the process. Is it going to work? Mm. And I guess that's what made the second time around different than the first. So, so just elaborate that more. What was different? the second time around than the first time you had to deal with this? Like major differences? The second time, like I said, I didn't want to sit in what I was going through. I wanted to work and keep my mind busy. And then because they didn't know um, if the chemotherapy would work this time. And I didn't want to use the um, the type of chemotherapy that I used the first time. Um, so they was trying something different. Luckily, it did work. Um, and they was able to see results immediately. Um, but during that time, like I said, I dealt with it in silence. Tell me why. Because you mentioned yeah. that three times. Hold on, hold on, answer. You mentioned that three times. Tell me why silence was the way you chose to live with it. I didn't know how to tell my family and friends. Um, and I needed to process it before I was able to share it with others. Because when I did share it with others, they was just thinking, um, let's spend time with her now because it may not be a later. Mm. And so that's when, um, after I shared it with close family members, then I went on social media to share it with the extended family to let them know I'm going to be okay. I am strong. Mm. Mm. You know, it's interesting because part of me thinks that you dealt with it in silence because sometimes we believe that if we don't talk about something, it's not real. Yes. Is that your story? Is that part of why you dealt with it that way? I needed to process it. I didn't want to accept it. Um, I didn't want to accept that this could be it for me. Mm, yeah, that, that, that's exactly, that 
last comment is exactly what I'm saying. And so what we do is, if I don't talk about it, right, that I don't have to face all of the succeeding and subsequent questions and issues that come up. So I, I ain't talking about it. I, I, silence is how I manage it. It's how I control it. And it's also how I avoid the things that are connected to this very devastating you know, conversation. And let me just say this, I totally understand why you would deal with it in silence. Um, so I'm not knocking your approach. I, I, I totally get it. In fact, I think that I might do the same thing. I'm just helping you unpack and the audience unpack, you know, why is it that when we get news that shakes us, sometimes we go inward? Because you've, you talked about processing it. And here's the part where I'm gonna push you a little bit, okay? The best way to process something, <clears throat> excuse me, is not to go silent. The best way to process something is in conversation. So real process, especially for a woman, right? When a, when a woman has something on her mind, she talks, <laughs> right? She talks, right? Whether it's the traffic, whether it's the kids. So women are, women are conditioned, they're nurtured to when they, when they, you think out loud. So when a woman goes silent, different from a man, when a man, when men, when men have issues, we immediately go silent. We go inward immediately. When a woman goes silent, that's when it's a whole nother level of trauma, of anxiety and fear, because the normal default setting of most women, not all, but most women is to talk. So when you say that you were processing it, I wanna say to you, probably not processing it. You were probably rocked to your core, knocked off your center, right? It was a lot deeper than processing. Did I get that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it, listen, I, when, when, when the producers gave me this story, I thought to myself, if I heard the doctor t t tell me rather once that I had cancer, I'd still be on the floor. Hmm. But to hear it twice is something that I just can't even imagine having to deal with. Um, and yet here you are tonight, right? Here you are tonight telling this story and giving all of us access to what this story means and what the story has done to you. Here's my last question before we take this break. Um, is the fact that you had been through this before, did it help at all? Did that experience help at all the second time around? No, because like I stated, they didn't know what type of chemotherapy to give me so that it would not progress. And I had just helped a friend do the exact same type of chemotherapy, um, <clears throat> the same breast cancer. So I looked to her and I was hopeful, like she survived this deadly cancer. I can do it as well. Mm. Well, listen, I'm glad you did. And it's so, it's so profoundly interesting that even, even with the fact that you had gone through this before, none of that experience helped you much to deal with it again. And you would think that the opposite would be true, but in your case, it was not. Mm, that's, that's something. Listen, everybody, I gotta take this break. When we come back, there's more to Angela's story. 
and we're going to talk a little bit about how she dealt with it because she mentioned it earlier, but we're going to drill down on it because when you get bad news, you try to manage whatever parts of your life that are still in your control. And Angela did that in a particular way and it had particular consequences for her. And I'm trying to suggest it'll have particular consequences for you too. It's not just about how we receive bad news. It's what we do after we get it. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back, everybody. I'm talking to my sister, Angela Pete tonight. And um, we're talking about her uh, two times, her second bout with breast cancer. Angela, let me, let me, let me ask you this. So... The second time around, did you, did you ever reconcile yourself to the possibility that you might die? Yes, yes. What was that moment like, that journey? That's something that people don't talk about. Like you're thinking about all the things you haven't done. Mm. Um, and leaving loved ones behind how your job is not finished, how I couldn't leave the person that I care for behind. Um, I, don't, I don't even know how to explain it. Um, it was overwhelming to think that this is it, to know that this is it. Mm. Mm. There's a possibility this is it, to know. Mm. I don't know how to express it. Um, this praying that he would give me more time. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Your face is changing. What, what's going on? What's going on? I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um. The first time I had cancer, like I said, I had to stay here. I had to fight because I was raising, raising my daughter. <clears throat> and the second time I had to fight because, um, you know, I'm taking care of someone that I love deeply. And that person had to take care of me the first time as well as the second time. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't let that person down. I couldn't. I had the fight. Mm. It, it wasn't my time. I had to. I have to let that person go before I go. So I had to fight. Yeah, I I see your fight tonight. I see you because you are determined not to cry. You have just made it up in your mind. <laughs> I'm not crying. I don't care what he says. I'm not crying. <laughs> but there's but there, no, no, but there's a freedom that comes along with it. So give yourself permission to do that tonight. Um, but I also know that you sort of, and you mentioned this before, you lost yourself in work. You tried to drown yourself in work. Um, talk to me about that. Okay, um, as a financial coach or consultant, 
Um, I would just throw myself in my work in, in regards to helping people with their finances. And you know, when you're helping people, they tell you way more than what they need to tell you. Mm. So they're telling me all about their personal problems. Um, and, you know, I would have people call me and tell me about what they were going through in their life. You know? Um, while, hold, on, hold on, hold on. While you were going through chemo and cancer. Mm-hmm. So you hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, because I'm going to get you now, because I'm, I'm going to be your big brother. So you were allowing other people to put their burdens on you while yeah. you were already carrying chemo and cancer. Mm-hmm. Yes. You see my face? What do you think my face is saying? How? Yeah, not, not how. No. <laughs> no, don't, don't ever do that again. <laughs> because I, I understand that you want to you wanna help people. I get that. But, you know, one of the things I love about people like you is that people like you are such giving, caring, loving people that you just naturally want to help people and give to people. But you also have to let people give to you. You also have to let people be there for you because it's okay let me say this to you it's okay for you to be weak it's okay for you to be sick it's okay for you to be to have needs it's okay because you're human and when you're in that situation you don't need to be carrying other people's loads and journeys and stories you need people to rally around you correct <laughs> she's like correct Yes, it's correct. I already know that. I, here's what I want to hear you say. I want to hear you say, Dr. Shard, I'm not, first of all, I'm never getting cancer again by faith. Absolutely. Right, right. But if I ever find myself in a, in a situation where I'm carrying a lot, what I want to hear you say is I'm never going to allow myself to take on other people's burdens too. Exactly. Yes. Never. 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 And it's and it's that's not being selfish. That's not being cold. That's you recognizing that you got to survive and you got to live for the people that you love. And my God, I, I see all my heart goes out to you because I'm just imagining what it must have felt like to be dealing with chemo and cancer and have people tell you about their bills, their relationship, their car note, their whatever. And you're fighting for your life and they're fighting for something less than life. Woo. Yeah. OK. <laughs> all right. Um, do you wish you had done something differently? Yes, I wish I would have um, not allowed myself to open myself up to receive other people's problems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think just for the sake of this conversation as well, I wish that, first of all, what you did was what you knew how to do and is what you thought was right. So let's just say that. But I think hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So looking back on it, what I would always advise someone is that the moment you get challenging news, and this is not just for you, this is for my audience. The moment you get challenging news, news that rocks you to your core, 
I think it's always good to center and to pray and to meditate and to find your language. But the sooner you can be in conversation about it, the sooner you can be talking to people is the better you will be taking care of yourself. Because when we isolate in the midst of trauma, it deepens the level of the trauma. When we're in yeah. conversation, we invite other people to help us carry this load. You get what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So again, that, that, that wasn't really a critique of what you did. It's just for everybody watching tonight to know, when you get challenging news, find your, first of all, you gotta already have in your life someone you can talk to, somebody you can trust. So this, this, this is part one. Make sure you have somebody in your life that you can trust special information and conversation with. And once you have that person, right, then, you know, once you've centered, you begin to talk and let them know. Um, let me ask you this. First of all, how's your health? How so are I'm you tonight? Good. I'm good. I'm beyond good. So what does that mean? Does that mean that you are I'm cancer-free. Wow, congratulations. Juan, clap. Juan's over there clapping. <laughs> You're cancer-free. That's an amazing, amazing thing. And that's after having it twice. That's after believing that having people in your life and your family think that you might die. Here you are tonight sitting here telling me, and I'm affirming uh, by faith, and not, not only are you cancer-free, but you're gonna live that way and be that way going forward. How does it feel to be able to say that to me and to the world? It's refreshing to know that I've overcome twice. Mm. You know, we think, um, we get upset about the little things in life. And I'm like, if I can overcome that twice, there's nothing I can't do. And while I was going through that, I was, um, I received a scholarship, I received another um, job opportunity. Um, and it's just like I was working on where I was going once I became a survivor mm. in the process. Yeah. So, to so keep that's, my, to keep me going. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm running out of time, but I want to do two things with you. Here's the first thing I want to do. Um, real quick, for everybody watching tonight, who is stressing out over little things and being petty and being, you know, silly about a relationship. You're a two-time cancer survivor. Um, what's your word to all those people about how serious life and death is? One word is have faith in yourself. Yeah, health is more important than anything. And, so and, and, certainly, and certainly more important than the petty arguments we seem to have. All right, let's do this. Um, I'm going to ask you some questions. Give me some answers to these questions. I'm doing this on purpose. All right. Tell me a place you want to visit, a place that you most want to visit that you've never been to. Africa. Africa. Okay. Anywhere in particular or just anywhere? Anywhere. Anywhere. Tell me something that you haven't done, but you want to try. Mm-hmm. Ski. Ski. Okay. That's good. Tell me, tell me, tell me about a food you wish you could eat all day and not gain any weight. Mm. Chocolate cake. 
<laughs> okay, I got, I got a couple of more. Tell me something that always makes you happy. Being with my mother. Tell me something that always makes you grow. Being a parent. Here's the last one. What's the best thing about you? Um, I'm a solutionist. Okay, so stop. Every answer you gave me is your assignment for the next three years. I want you to go to Africa. I want you to ski. I want you to eat more chocolate cake, spend more time with your mama, spend more time being a parent, huh? And I want you to find a way to make being a solutionist, not just profitable spiritually, but profitable monetarily. Those, the answer to these questions is your agenda for the next three years. You got it? Yes. Skiing, Africa, chocolate cake, your mama, being a parent, and finding solutions. Listen, Angela, I got to let you go. Thank you for being on tonight. Thank you. Listen. Listen, everybody, when we come back, I learned some things. I want to share them with you. Right after this, we're going to have an aha moment together. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. So um, I learned some things from that conversation. Let's do an aha moment together. You know, what's interesting about talking to Angela is the truth that if there's some things that you really want to do and you haven't done them, there's some places you really want to go and you haven't gone there yet. There's some things that make you happy or always make you grow. And those are the things you should be doing right now. Because what Angela teaches us is that life can be hard. As Dr. King would say, sometimes as hard as crucible steel. And life will drive its cold steel into your already bleeding wounds. Which is exactly what happened to Angela. 2000, she finds out she has breast cancer. 2001, she finds out that it's come back again. Life drove cold steel into her already bleeding wounds. And none of us, no matter how much you believe and pray and go to church and speak in tongues and roll around on the floor or go to the mosque, whatever your faith practice is, none of us get to avoid what life can do to us. Because it's not personal. It's just how it is. Which means that if anything can happen in any given moment to any one of us, all of us need to be about the business of doing the things that we really want to do. What do you really want to do? What do you most enjoy? What brings you joy? What always puts a smile on your face? Whatever the answer to these questions are, are the things that you should be doing most of the time. Whoever the person or the people happen to be who fill you with joy, that's who you need to be spending your time with and talking to and about. Not these other people who wish you ill and could care less about your survival. That's what I got from that conversation. You know, at the end, she said she wanted to ski, go to Africa, eat chocolate cake, spend time with a mom, be a parent, find solutions. What's your list? What's the things that you know you should be doing if tomorrow was not promised to you? All right. Let's do some Ask Dr. Sean, people. Highly play the bumper. 
You guys always send me amazing videos and I'm always grateful for the videos that you send. Let's take a look at this one. Hi, Dr. Sean, my name is Belle and I'm from Brooklyn and I need a little bit of help. Do you think a relationship can be maintained if there's no sexual chemistry? Ooh, well, it depends on what stage of life you're in. I think people who are older um, and considerably older can be in relationships that are not primarily based upon sex. So sexual chemistry would not be a deal breaker in those situations. There are some people for whom sexuality and being sexual with someone isn't the thing that sort of drives the connection. And those people tend to be older. So if you're older, it is possible. But I think for most young people, it becomes very difficult to have a relationship with someone where there's either no attraction or lack of sexual chemistry. Now, you said lack of sexual chemistry. You didn't say lack of attraction. So I'm assuming that the two of you are attracted to each other, but you don't, you're not compatible in some way that chemistry applies. The good news is you can work on that. The good news is you can do work with a therapist or a counselor to sort of unlock and then to sync your energy sexually. There are people who master and there are people who do exclusive work in this area. You just have to be open to it. So if a person has almost everything that you want, but the one thing that they don't have is the kind of sexual chemistry you need, then before you throw it away, how about you do some work? You know, everything can't be fast food where you get it all in a bag and it's exactly the way you ordered it and it tastes the same every time, no matter what restaurant you go to. That ain't how love works. There's some work you're gonna have to put into this, but it can be preserved and saved. Now, if you don't do the work and there's never any sexual chemistry, well, you're doomed, <laughs> especially if you're young. Because the reality is, for most young people, and even middle-aged people, sexuality is an important part of being with someone. In fact, for a lot of people, it's the reason some folks got together. Chemistry is a thing that is tricky. And it's also a conversation the two of you should have had and discovered before you started dating seriously. You see, here's something that the church folks won't agree with and they won't, you know, tell you, but I'm going to tell you. A part of the reason why I think sometimes it's important to make sure that you've had a little tryst with somebody before you accept the ring from them is to make sure that you have sexual chemistry, is to make sure that you have a kind of compatibility in the bedroom that you can live with so that you know if you don't have that, that you need to start working on it. And how do you know if the first time you have sex with somebody is on your wedding night? Because then it's too late. <laughs> you can't run. I mean, I guess you can, but it's going to be expensive. Sexual chemistry is very complicated and everybody has a different configuration of it. I think it can work if you do the work. I think if you don't want to do the work, then... Mm -mm. Yeah, good luck with that. Let me know what happens. Anyway, I got to take this break. When we come back, we're going to do some more Ask Dr. Sean. And then later on, we're going to do some Here's What Doesn't Make Sense. Because there's a lot of crazy things going on in the world, okay? And we're going to talk about it right after this.
Welcome back, everybody. People in the studio are still reeling from my advice from the last question. <laughs> anyway, so somebody emailed me this question. Growing up, I always had a passion for being a rapper, but I gave up on my dreams when my children were born. I'm now in my 50s, and I want to pursue my dream. Have I missed my chance? Maybe. Probably. But under these conditions, they're obviously 50-year-old rappers, right? We can name them, right? Snoop, Jay-Z. I don't know who some other 50-year-old rappers want. I don't know. But they're, but they're out there. I mean, Diddy, right? 50-year-old rappers. I don't know if Diddy's a rapper, but they're out there. But they didn't start when they were 50. Right? I mean, they started when they were in their 20s, when they were young, they just been in the game a long time. I think that you can have something in your latter years that you missed in your younger years if you change your expectations. So if you think that you're going to be going on tour and, you know, I don't know, whatever people do on tour. No, that's what you do when you're 20. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Now, can you have a hit record that goes viral on YouTube at 50? Absolutely. Can you make one or two songs or five songs and people actually love them? Absolutely. But if you think that you're going to be, you know, whatever little baby is, <laughs> name a rapper. I can't think of rappers right now. Or NLE Chopper, if you, if you think it'll be whatever those people are at 50, then your expectations are, are off. You see, as you, as you mature, you have to have a different sense of what a thing means. And being a rapper at 20 doesn't mean what it means. Being a rapper at, at 18 isn't what it means at 27. It can't, but can't be what it means at 37 and better not be what it means at 50. So if, you're, if you are able to manage your expectations and have a different understanding of your connection to this dream, then maybe something can happen. But I'm also recommending that you not throw away your responsibilities to become a rapper. Okay? Let me just say this clearly because I want everybody to know that I said it. Don't quit your job, okay? Because you got a family. <laughs> okay? You got bills to pay. You're going to have to find a way to do what other people who wanted to do what you want to do also had to do. That is to pursue a dream and maintain a household. Okay? So you be a rapper, but go to work every day and pay that car note. You know what I'm saying? Because ain't nobody got time for you to say, I can't go to work because I'm pursuing my rap career. Nobody has time for that. That's what you do when you're 17 and you're in your mother's basement. You're 50. You ain't, I, prayerfully, you ain't in your mother's basement. Because if you are, the question you should be asking me is, <clears throat> Dr. Sean, how do I get out of my mother's basement? <laughs> but listen, pursue your dream. I always say that. But just have a different association with the details and how it plays itself out, okay? Don't have 20-year-old expectations when you're in your 50s. All right, let's take a look at this video sent to me by Brandon. Hello, Dr. Sean. My name is Brandon. I reside in the D.C. area. Um, I have a question. Me and my friends were having a conversation, and we were discussing the 
wars and money that's being sent overseas for wars. And we was wondering, do you think that we will ever receive reparations? No. <laughs> Short answer, in America? Reparations from this country? No. I don't think America will ever get to the place where she's willing to quantify and put a number on 240 years of trauma, death, dread, disease, and despair. No, I just don't think that America, and if it happens, I don't think it'll happen in our lifetime. I, I just don't think that that's the country we live in today. And just watch the news, and you can see that this country in certain segments is sliding off in the opposite direction. Now folks almost want to deny that slavery ever happened, that segregation and lynching ever happened. Soon they'll be saying that Dr. King was, was not a real person. So when you factor that into what the country's doing right now, it's easy to believe and to see that reparations is not a viable possibility in this country. Not because we don't deserve it, but because the country is just not morally there. The country does not feel responsible or accountable in the same way that this country felt accountable, responsible to Japanese citizens put in internment camps, camps rather, to Jewish Americans who came through the Holocaust. Um, we paid reparations to both of those communities. But when it comes to African Americans and really Native Americans, no. But let me just say this just to challenge you. Be careful what you ask for. Because let's say America gives us reparations. And let's say America figures out what the dollar amount is and we get reparations. Do you know what's going to happen the next time we complain about racism and injustice? America is going to say to us, white supremacists in this country is going to say to us, oh, no, 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 we already paid you. And you know I'm right. I'm not saying that what they would say would be right, but that's exactly what they're going to do. If we ever got reparations, they would say the next time you complained about police brutality or the next time we complained about housing or education, they would say, oh, no, 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 no. We already paid you. We don't owe you nothing. Your schools are what they are. Your jails are what they are. We paid you. Because that's how America thinks. It's very transactional. Here's the last thing to consider about that. Is there really a dollar amount that you can put on 240 years of absolute suffering? I just don't think so. But that's my answer. Yeah. All right, someone DM me this question. I'm gonna do this one really quick. How do I deal with being jealous of my friends when they excel in their careers while I feel like I'm nowhere near accomplishing my dreams and goals? Hmm. Well, you can begin by not focusing on what your friends are doing. Stop comparing yourself to them. You see, your journey is your journey, and what you're called to do is what you're called to do when you're called to do it. Trust the timing of your life, beloved. And I, I, I happen to think that we never get what it is we want or deserve until we find the morality or the courage to celebrate other people when they get what they want, while we're still waiting for what we hope for. You got to change your relationship with what's happening with your friends. Because if there are blessings happening for your neighbor, it means that there are blessings happening in the neighborhood. And eventually it's going to get to you. Yeah, don't compare yourself with them. And don't be angry about the great things that are happening. Focus on what you need to do. 
So what is it that you're not doing? Why isn't, why isn't it the case that you're not accomplishing your goals? Instead of monitoring or managing their celebration, put all that high-tuned intelligence and focus on what you're doing. So much so that you don't have time to even notice what's going on in somebody else's life because you're too busy fixing your own. Yeah. The same success that they have is the same success that you can reproduce in your own situation. But you got to do the work. You got to transform, got to grow, got to focus, got to find the discipline, the passion and the faith. You focus on that. And it doesn't matter when we get there. As long as we all get there, that's all that matters. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there is success. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to do some Here's What Doesn't Make Sense. And I got one for you right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Here at the Book of Sean, we like to do a little something called Here's What Doesn't Make Sense. So, do you know what a deaf doula is? A deaf doula is someone who offers support when people are dying by supporting them in telling their stories, planning for their death, and keeping vigil at the end of someone's life. A deaf doula is there, and they are people who are trained to be there. They're non-clinical trained support people um, for other people who are dying and for their families. But apparently, the Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C., has apparently hired its first deaf doula. Laura Leister Minch is the first deaf doula at the Congressional Cemetery. And let me just say that I didn't know there was such a thing as a Congressional Cemetery, so that was news to me. So if you didn't know there was such a thing as a deaf doula, I didn't know there was a Congressional Cemetery. But I digress. A deaf doula happens to be an important um, person. And the movement is important because the movement believes that talking about death is a lot more beneficial than not talking about it. And the movement believes that we shouldn't be afraid to have conversations about our mortality. As in the case of my guest tonight, who had to have that conversation at least twice. And when you consider the number of people who've already died in 2023, who's some of the friends you... Didn't Elvis Presley's daughter just die? You had the drummer from Earthworm. I mean, there are a lot of people who have died already in 2023. Notable people. And, and the month, and the first month of the year isn't even over. When you consider how many people have already died, I'm just saying we might want to rethink our pathological pattern of avoidance when it comes to talking about death. It's almost as if we believe that if we don't talk about it, it won't happen. Or if we do talk about it, we'll make it happen, which is spooky and magical thinking. That's not how death works, okay? It's not going to happen because you talked about it. It's going to happen because it's going to happen to everybody, whether you talk about it or not. So you might want to talk about it. You know, give yourself a sense of peace and the people around you a sense of understanding. I just think, you know, the reality is whether you talk about death or not, we're still gonna to have to deal with it. And I think it's great that there are people in the world who specialize in helping other people die, help them deal with the process. Now they're not killing them like Kevorkian, 
but they're there to walk them through the dark night of the soul. And after being a minister for 20, 25 years, I have been at the bedsides of people who were dying, held their hands and walked them into the darkness as best as I could while nurturing their families. Yeah, deaf doulas play an important role. And I hope more of us embrace the notion that we might need them. I'm not a deaf doula, okay? And I don't really want to be one. But um, if today was your last day, what do you wish you were doing? All right. This story is at the top of the stories of what doesn't make sense. Let me hurry before I run out of time. Did you hear the story about how Ukrainian doctors have successfully removed a live, listen to this, a live grenade from a soldier's chest. Yes, the Ukrainian Deputy Minister of Defense, Hannah Myler, said that the surgeons have removed the weapon from Justin Lee's, uh, from the heart, from the, let me start over. The Deputy Minister of Defense, Hannah Myler, said that the surgeons have successfully removed the weapon. <laughs> A live grenade from the chest of an active serviceman. Apparently the surgery was so successful that the soldier has been sent to have further rehabilitation and recovery. So of course our thoughts and prayers are with the soldier. They go out to his family. We're hoping that he recovers and he has a great life henceforth and forevermore. We wish him blessings, all that. But it's a part of this story that doesn't make sense. And when we, we got this story from one of the major news outlets, and when we looked at the story, they all forgot to ask an important question. How did a live grenade get into the chest of a soldier? Nobody asked the question, so we don't have an answer. Somebody needs to explain to me, how do you get a live grenade in somebody's chest? So much so that you need to have surgery to get it out. Because you can't swallow a live grenade, right? You can't swallow a grenade. And if you could swallow a grenade, it would end up in your stomach, not your chest. Somebody needs to explain to me, how did a live grenade get into a soldier's chest? Okay? I'm waiting for the answer. I'm happy for the soldier. I hope he's going to end up fine. They say he's heading towards recovery. But there's a much more important question out there. There's somebody in the world who knows how to put a live grenade in somebody's chest. We need to find them <laughs> and figure out how they do this so that we can stop them from doing it to other people. Y'all hear what I'm saying to you? How do you get a live grenade in somebody's chest? How do you get a dead grenade in somebody? How do you get a grenade in somebody's chest? I don't know, but we need to find out. Was it the Russians? Was it his ex-wife? <laughs> Who put the grenade in there? I hope we find out, okay? Because there's somebody out there putting grenades in people's chest. Anyway, thank you for tuning in tonight. Remember, beloved, no matter what happens, you can handle it. If the news is good or bad, you're more than a conqueror. Y'all be good to each other. And remember, I love you. See you next time.